I think one of the headwinds for the private side of PropTech, so where, where I sit, is just the way in which those companies that went public have performed since going public. You know, there's been this broad market retrenchment in the public markets um, that's affected every company. But I think in particular, there's been an impact on real estate tech companies or prop techs because of the fact that, you know, mortgage origination volume is going down and uh, home transaction volume is also going down. Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, your host for the Housing News Podcast. And if you've visited our office or even seen video of us in the office over the last few years, you've probably seen one of the Tomvest Ventures real estate technology market maps on our walls and one of our offices at, at HW Media. This is the work of today's guest, Nima Wedlake, principal at Tomvest Ventures. Nima brings a ton of value in this conversation, talking through the Tomvest investment strategy, the portfolio, and the theses that he is currently betting on in the real estate tech, prop tech, and fintech markets. We hit on a few really important topics, uh, kind of in, in the wake of what's happening in the real estate and mortgage ecosystem right now. We're potentially on a wave of rapid new company formation and how that rapid company formation can impact fintech and prop tech strategies. We also talk about the kind of the bifurcation of capital and this new development of thinking about opco capital and propco capital, creating a more permanent capital structure for innovators in the real estate technology ecosystem. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Nima Wedlake as much as I did. Enjoy the episode. Nima, thr- thrilled to have you here. You're kind of a... Um, a celebrity for me off of the, the the real estate technology market map. I'm not kidding. We've had that thing printed the last uh, two years and like had a half a dozen of them sitting around our office because it's such a such a cool resource. That's amazing to hear, and it's a it's a labor of love. Um, and I, I get smarter when I put them together, so it's a, I'm, I'm glad you you find value from it too. I mean, I can only imagine. I remember back to my investment banking days and doing like market maps of different verticals to primarily to like tout around to the Fortune 500s about their acquisition targets and, and M&A criteria. But I imagine it's a kind of a, a similar, similar rationale for the, the labor of love that has become the Tom Vest real estate technology market map. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's my job to know what's uh, what's happening in real estate tech and even uh, even I find myself finding new companies that I had never heard of before or completely missed um, while I'm putting together that map so it's it's quite it's quite a, a, a useful exercise for sure so we'll definitely drop a, a link in the show notes so our, our audience can check this out but so like this year's 2022 map, 275 companies that kind of go through categorization of how to find your home, finance your home, close a transaction, manage your home, mortgage origination tech, rent your home, kind of the full life cycle or full ecosystem of where innovation is happening or can happen inside of the housing world. Tell us a little more about how the the market map originated and kind of how the the categories have evolved over the years. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'll just backing up quickly. I work at a venture capital firm based in San Francisco called Tom Best Ventures, and Tom Best has had a long history of investing in fintech. You know, I would say uh, some of the the earlier uh, you know 
fintech companies before fintech was this, you know, very popular term that was co-opted by, you know, hundreds, thousands of companies. Um, the team at Tombass, this was before my time, spent a lot of time thinking through uh, opportunities in online credit. And we made a number of investments across that, uh, different credit products like Lending Club on the personal lending side, Cabbage on the small business lending side, SoFi and student loan uh, refi, et cetera. And about five years ago, we really took a hard look at real estate and you know, thought that for a variety of reasons, the time was now to, to start building an, an investment track record in the category. And a lot of what we did initially in, in, on the real estate side was in housing finance. So we thought of, you know, if you take you look at the long arc of digitization. <laughs> <laughs> we can back that one up. Digitization, digitization of real estate. Yeah. <laughs> digitization, yeah, nailed it. Uh, of, of, fi- of finance. The, so if you look at the long arc of, of the tech enablement of finance, I think real estate for a lot of reasons was the last place where you saw this digital transformation take place because it's the most complicated transaction. There's this totally unique capital markets infrastructure that's in place. And the transaction itself usually requires multiple stakeholders in order to, to finally get effectuated and, and originated. And so that's why it was the last area for us. But I think we, when we started actually studying real estate and real estate finance specifically, we were really pleasantly surprised by the, the quality of entrepreneurs working within the category, the, just the massive opportunity that they were, they were tackling. And so a lot of where we were focused initially was, was on that, that finance piece. And then building the market map was sort of this exercise around, okay, we have some sort of thesis about this very small segment within real estate. Let's expand the aperture a little bit and try to de- develop several theses within, within the real estate vertical uh, around where we think venture-backed opportunities can exist, where, where technology can provide meaningful value and change. How do you that that term venture backed opportunities? How do you how do you qualify that? Like when you think about what kind of categories are enticing or can you know can produce the the TAM or the multiple of invested capital to to make venture attractive in a vertical? How do you start to put those characteristics on paper? It's a really good question. It's something we think about a lot, especially given the fact that we invest in specific verticals. Um, you know, I think oftentimes. Everyone can agree that there is an opportunity to build software for a particular use case, uh, you know, within, let's say, the real estate transaction process. However, there's always this second order question around, can this software business scale to a point where it's generating meaningful uh, cash flows, where it's at the scale at which it can be a public company? Or has it created enough IP and enterprise value to find a potential buyer at a multiple of when you originally made the investment? We have a few heuristics, I would say, for making that determination. It's it's oftentimes very um, company-specific. And if you look at the history of incredible venture outcomes... I would say oftentimes at the earliest stages, they look like small ideas. 
And then it's, you know, really a byproduct of the team's ability to start small and then expand the vision uh, incrementally. I, I think Figma in some ways is a good example of that, right? It was started as this sort of wonky online design tool and, and really took hold in a, in a massive way, uh, you know, over the decade they were working on that product. And so for us, one of the heuristics we ask ourselves is if everything goes right, can this company surpass $100 million in revenue on an annualized basis and continue growing you know, 30% plus annually? And I think that's an interesting exercise for the investment team to think through, okay, what is it going to take to get to $100 million in revenue, you know, breaking down revenue into its constituent parts? And is the market opportunity that they're pursuing or the adjacencies around that initial market large enough to support a company of that scale? Or do they need to own the market, for instance? And that's not very realistic, right? Yeah. So when we think about the evolution of technology and digitization in the mortgage and real estate space, we've had this thesis at Housing Wire that you know, a decade ago, the innovation was happening at, at point of sale. And there was a, a lot of focus on making the the loan originator or the real estate agent experience more cohesive with their borrower or, or home buyer. And um, then COVID accelerated the, the closing process. And we saw a lot of emphasis on remote capabilities and digital closing capabilities. And now there's this gap in the middle where, where there's an opportunity for, for innovation. Um, Two weeks ago, we had Housing Wire Annual and Spencer Raskoff spoke at, at a luncheon that we held and he talked about the four phases of prop tech innovation that he's seen. And I think that his phases align well with what we've seen in the, the venture world is the earliest days, a huge focus on the solutions that were more real estate innovation for consumers. So like platforms and like kind of the, the big TAM that you can draw from the consumer side. But um, at Housing Wire, we see so much more and we interact so much more with the B2B players. How have you seen that kind of shift happen of seeing uh, you know, tangible market opportunities inside of the B2B players where the, the scale or the scope of that opportunity might not have been seen as 100 million plus um, a decade ago? But there's clearly been some players and some players in your portfolio that have kind of redefined what the, the B2B opportunity is. Yeah. Yeah, I think a couple of things. First, if you think about who these technology vendors are selling to, over the last decade, the buyers of technology have become so much more sophisticated and also have come to accept the fact that they need to adopt these tools in order to stay competitive. Um, you know, we're, we were uh, early investors in Blend before before the company went public, and you know, one of the really interesting discussions when we were spending time with the company in this is, you know, 2018 is around the um, basically the mindset set shift at Wells Fargo, which was at the time, you know, their largest marquee customer. And the fact that Blend successfully sold into Wells at a time when they didn't, Wells did not have a single cloud application um, from a third party vendor in place. And so there's this massive both, you know, platform shift, but also cultural change that needed to happen within these within large banks and, and even smaller non-bank lenders. So I think that that box has been checked, right? Everyone has become good buyers of technology for the most part. The second thing that I think is creating tailwinds in the in the on the B2B side of real estate 
is the fact that we're seeing and and we will continue to see especially in the wake of what's happening in the current market environment is rapid new company formation i think whenever you're this is just sort of a truism in enterprise software right if you are selling into a greenfield account someone that doesn't have a point of sale system for example that's a much easier simpler sales cycle than it is if you have to displace an incumbent vendor and so the largest software companies are are those that have a motion that sells into massive enterprises that are doing some sort of rip and replace but then also have a thriving greenfield market that they're selling into i think salesforce is a good example of this even figma again is a good example of this and i think we're and you could see that in, in mortgage as well when you think about Salesforce and you know across all industries, not just financial services, you can think of it as like the the enterprise or the global strategic accounts, and then the really large SMB business. So when you think about the, I think you use the term rapid new company formation can lead to more greenfield, greenfield and SMB kind of synonymous from a sale software sales perspective. Yeah. Or yeah, exactly. So you know, a net new company that that hasn't had an opportunity to build a tech stack yet, um, or yeah. or it's a new okay. business unit within an existing company that that needs to build that stack. Got it. Okay. So you laid out. You started with the heuristics, and I think now we're kind of jumping into one of the the theses that like fuels investment interest. So let's can we go a little broader and talk about the different theses that that you're formulating now and starting to make bets on or preparing to make bets on? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, you know, one of, one of the interesting phenomenons, and I think it's in some ways a reflection of the current market environment and um, some of the challenges that have been presented to, you know, every party within real estate, not just venture backed startups um, is just the, uh, the cyclicality of capital markets in real estate and the challenges that presents for you know individual operators with, within the value chain. So there's this, I think, recurring need for a permanent permanent capital structure uh, through which to lend or to buy properties or to you know fuel transactions. Whether you know whether you're an I buyer or a real estate fund, etc. And so. In order to solve for that, we're seeing lots of innovation at the what I would say at the intersection of operating companies and, and you know property prop goes right or real estate funds, and so it's this pairing of a venture back technology business with a real estate fund that has committed capital attached to it, and um, and then there are in effect management agreements flowing between those two entities so that the Opco has a line of sight into the capital that they can use to acquire properties or, or in effect, run their businesses, the oxygen that they use to, to get their business to run. And they also have a line of sight into the income stream associated with doing what they do on a daily basis. A good example of that is a company in our portfolio called Mind, which is a tech-enabled property management um, startup founded by some of the, the early pioneers in the SFR space, the single family uh, rental space. And they recently partnered with Invesco to, in effect, buy single family rentals on, uh, in partnership with Invesco and then convert those rentals onto the mind management platform. So you get this, this great pairing 
of capital sources and a very um, durable partner in the form of Invesco um, that can help help mine scale in a in a more sustainable way. That's interesting. I never thought of. I always kind of thought of mind as a like straight up services business and, and marketplace less so than the actual owner of, of single family rental assets. Was that a, a strategy shift or like something or and just opportunistic um, opportunity to leverage the services capabilities inside of a, an, a closely related portfolio? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think if you were to ask that question to, uh, Doug Bryan, the founder of mine, he would probably talk about what it took to build waypoints, you know, in the, in the two thousands and the fact that he, he had to basically do everything, right. He had to build it, um, an acquisitions team. He had to build property management capabilities in house. Um, he had to, you know, raise, raise capital in order to fund those acquisitions. There was no tech stack he could really rely on or, or, or build off of. And so that's what they did at Waypoint. Mind is sort of taking a very value-add slice of that stack that he had to build and making it available to anyone as effectively as a service, like take the AWS uh, approach to property management, right? And I think the there's an argument to be made that the way in which capital will be deployed into the asset class uh, in this you know next decade plus will be via um, these tech enabled management platforms so Invesco does not need to go full stack right they can just be the capital provider and they can partner with these these entities like mind there's there's many others um, as to be the vector through which capital is deployed so they're they're sort of layering on acquisitions as another um, service option within the property management uh, stack that they built. And thinking about the kind of the bifurcation of capital and the, like this recurring need for a permanent capital structure, it doesn't just apply in this SFR space. I mean, I've looked at it through kind of the, the lens of Greg Schwartz's business at, at Tomo and the different iBuyer and power buyer scenarios where you raise venture or, or seed for a, um, for the, for the operations of the business. And, and for that capital, you're, you got some high hurdle. You're at like a 35% IRR or, or something that you're targeting, but you can't target that type of returns on the deployment of capital for, for lending or, or buying assets. So kind of the bifurcation of the permanent capital structure with somebody like Invesco kind of enables you to, you know, kind of run it, run it two separate hurdles, like the, uh, the, the asset backed, um, hurdle rate, which might be single digit or like low teens or the, the higher hurdle rate for the operating business. Yep, exactly. And I think the other feature of the Opco Propco model is that it provides uh, scale permanence of capital and basically certainty around the cost of that capital, right? Uh, especially in today's environment where there's just been this, this massive volatility in, in the rate environment. It's tough as a as the CEO of a venture-backed startup who is probably you know in the depths of their J-curve still to now also have to layer in a higher cost of capital into the fundamental biz- business model uh, while also having an expensive technology team, a you know, GNA and a sales team. That, uh, that also you know needs needs to get funded so I think it's the in a lot of ways it's it's you're right it's about 
sort of having these dual hurdle rates, but then also having certainty uh, around what that the cost of that second uh, bucket of capital will look like. Does the Tomvest strategy stay focused on like on the Opco side, or is there ever a path where investors in this ecosystem, you know, raising money from institutional LPs, might have a, a sidecar propco vehicle that that you know satisfies a different part of the LPs' um, uh, diversification strategy? So I think you're going to see more and more of that right now. If you if you're a manager of a venture fund, there's a very specific LP agreement that dictates what sort of assets you can deploy capital into. And, you know, they're primarily early stage technology businesses. You're seeing this trend towards more venture funds becoming RIAs, which give them sort of a more permissive mandate around what they can can and can't do. And, you know, I'd argue that a big component of Andreessen's investment into Flow was a byproduct of of that flexibility, right? Like there's a big like hard asset component to the, to that business for sure. Um, our our firm also has a little bit of flexibility because we are actually a, a single uh, a sing- we're a single LP fund. We're uh, you know in some ways a subsidiary of a family office, and so in the past on the fintech side and a little bit on the prop tech side, we've looked at both the credit opportunity and the equity opportunity. Really interesting. So you, you kind of tease that and talked about the the challenges that we're facing right now in the global economy, specifically in the the housing sector. Um, last two years brought record home price appreciation. Uh, we're seeing that that stutter step right now. We've seen interest rates more than more than double, um, way more than double in the in the last six or seven months. And that's put a lot of pressure on folks across the real estate and mortgage ecosystem, not just the the players on the field lending money and selling houses, but all of their partners and technology and, and prop tech. How, how have these rapid market changes influenced investing strategy around the prop tech thesis? Yeah, I think uh, a few ways that, that we can get into. You know, one in, in addition to you know record home price appreciation last year and just the amount of deal activity in real estate that was this massive tailwind for the technology vendors operating within within the category. You also saw a ton of activity in the uh, in the equity markets. Uh, you know, the, there was the SPAC phenomenon, the IPO window was wide open in a way that I had never seen in my career. And as a result, we saw a ton of prop techs, a ton of fintechs, a few insure techs go public in 2020 and 2021. And I think one of the headwinds for the private side of PropTech, so where, where I sit, is just the way in which those companies that went public have performed since going public. You know, there's been this broad market retrenchment in the public markets um, that's affected every company, but I think in particular there's been a, there's been an impact on real estate tech companies or prop techs. Because of the the fact that you know mortgage origination volume is going down and, and uh, home transaction volume is also going down, and the fact that these companies arguably went public too early, they hadn't yet reached profitability. There, there wasn't this level of predictability in the business on a quarterly basis, which is something that you know public market investors really really care about, and they'll punish you if if you uh, miss an earnings. Like you you know this sort of given your background and. 
I think the an inevitability of venture is that we we tend to look to the results of public companies as comps for what we do on the private side. And so because there's been this massive valuation reset on the public side, we're, we're sort of simultaneously going through the same thing on the private side, rethinking how to value these businesses, particularly those that, that are based um, on a sort of transaction model versus a recurring SaaS model. So I would say I'll, I'll stop there and we can go into other sort of areas that, of, that I'm thinking through as an investor. But I would say that's, that's a big one these days. Well, let's stay down the investing path and then we'll jump over to like how it's actually affecting opcas and like the, the, the more feet on the street look. So public market valuations are down, which was previously your benchmark for setting valuations on the private side for different funding rounds. So we're in a, we're in an environment right now where capital is flowing less freely and there's a potential, if not a, a setting a standard of, of potential down rounds for, for companies that are going out for more capital in Q4 2022. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I think there's, there's one way to think about a, a private early stage technology company, which is, you know, you're basically investing in a hypothesis. And the hypothesis gets validated on a recurring basis. And as you capture more data, you can sort of update your priors and, and, and sort of recalculate the probability that this investment you make um, is successful, sort of like a, a version of a Bayesian probability. One of the, the key things that indicates whether a company is successful or not is if they can raise an additional round of capital, particularly for companies that are not yet profitable. And Right now, the probability of raising that additional round of capital has gone down for any uh, venture-backed technology company, let alone those, those in real estate. And so the thing that we're advising our companies to do is to um, recalibrate their business models such that they don't need to go to market to raise that additional capital in the short term. You know, for some, it's it's harder than uh, than others, like given the timing of when they last raised. But you know, I think you know, our viewpoint is that ultimately these will make companies more resilient. We'll recalibrate business models on around things that will be more sustainable. Maybe you know, I think in general, folks are willing to to trade off lower growth for longer runway. And so there's, I think we're just in the midst of this massive recalibration because the venture markets have become much less active than, than they were a year ago. I mean, op, like there's not an, any, op, there's not a single operator out there who wants the, the dilution of raising more capital than they need or the dilution that comes with a down round or the headlines that, that come with a down round. But one of the benefits of private markets, which I kind of get exposure to in my world, a little more on the private equity side, and you get exposure to in your world on the on the venture side, is the beauty of not being subject to public scrutiny and having to to jump through the the quarterly um, hula hoops of, uh, of of equity analysts. And um, you're building and investing on on long term uh, theses to to achieve large market potential. I'm building and investing on long-term market um, theses to build long-term capital appreciation. Yet we still have the pressure of, of hitting, hitting metrics every year. So how do you balance the, the operator mindset with the, the companies that you've invested in the companies that you're a board member or board observer on? How do you balance the mindset of like, Hey, tighten the belt, 
get profitable now, recalibrate how you can. And oh yeah, we also still think that you can be the next DECA unicorn and um and focus on on the horizon. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh it's a very challenging um tightrope to walk and it's very specific on the the companies that um uh, on a specific or an individual company in their unique circumstances. Because you're right, you know, you want to tighten the belt, you want to extend runway as much as possible, but you also want to ultimately create an attractive high growth technology business that can go on to raise future rounds of venture capital from outside investors who tend to spend a lot of time thinking about top line growth and the uh, you know the ability to get to you know venture scale ultimately and so what we what we tend to do is you know really look at the cash position of the business and understand ways in which we can improve it if runway is sub 12 months, then you sort of inevitably have to go into, you know, hibernation mode or go into uh, the, or run this exercise with the sole goal being is becoming default alive, which is a sort of a Paul Grahamism around. You need to bring, you need to be able to fund the op X of the business with revenues that are generated from the business such that you aren't uh, burning through your remaining capital balance. And so, you know, maybe that impairs growth rate, but I think in this market environment, that is just an, an inevitability. Yeah. When we, when we talk to bankers and, you know, folks across the ecosystem, I think there's a lot of folks anticipating more consolidation in 2023 um, around IMBs, potentially more real estate brokerages, but there's, there's also some, rumblings of uh expedited consolidation of of some of the the prop tech companies and and technology players is if if default alive is not an option do you see or anticipate whether it's uh private equity backed companies coming in and kind of taking venture deals off the table or uh like where where do you see the consolidation happening or or not I, i think it's an inevitability and i think you'll start seeing it within the cohort of public companies as well i mean I feel like there's already rumors that 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 may occur, and you know, right now, if I was in the seat of a PE buyer or at a you know a larger corporate buyer with the balance sheet to be acquisitive, I would be extremely excited about you know leaning in. This is this is sort of a period that is the market has very much shift, shifted from a you know a a seller's market to a buyer's market um, on the M&A side. And so there, there will inevitably be, inevitably be deals to, to be had. And so, you know, I think looking into 2023, that's something that we're um, definitely anticipating. Okay. So, okay. That's kind of, that's kind of doom and gloomy. We're talking about like the, <laughs> the folks who can't live on to see the other side, but let's, let's, um, Let's control our mindset here and uh, and focus on some of the the silver linings. So um, you did talk about a silver lining being if you do have the balance sheet and management team and access to capital to to be an acquirer. This next the next leg of this market could be very ad- advantageous to building the the next cycle's market leader for for innovation. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the characteristics of those companies that might be primed to, to be acquirers and really lead the next leg forward. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I, I joke sometimes that running a real estate tech business is, you know, choose is like choosing to run a, a company on hard mode, you know, or, or legendary mode, like whatever video game you, you like best. And um, it also requires. I was thinking Tesla. I was thinking ludicrous mode. Oh, like. or ludicrous mode. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and so you know, I it also requires this really interesting Venn diagram of skill sets in order to, to truly be a successful uh, real estate tech entrepreneur. You know, you need you need to have a strong technology background or at least a a product driven mind uh some someone who's capable of you know building consumer grade products you need to have the capital markets expertise that we we talked about uh previously given how uh, much of an impact that has on the prospects for um for so many prop tech companies you need to be able to raise venture capital you need you need to be a magnet for talented individuals and so i would say key number one is having a great leadership team in place that is unafraid of periods of volatility because that is an inevitability in this asset class. You know, we're, we're, we're in the depths of it today. Five years from now, we will probably be experiencing a, a, another challenge or, or cycle downturn. And, you know, our, when we make an investment, we are sort of underwriting it to a 10 plus year journey. And so, um, that understanding the grit of a founding founding team is a key part of our underwriting process, knowing that they will inevitably hit these moments. Um, the second thing we we look for is um, is just just agility. So I think the combination of having this confluence of skill sets plus the ability to completely shift the boat based on what they're, what folks are seeing in the market. Um, and take their entire organization with them is super important. And that's also a hallmark of a startup, right? Being able to pivot quickly uh, in a way that a, a large uh, organization can't. So I would say grit, agility, and a confluence of skill sets are like the, the three big things we look for. And, um, and then again, within real estate, we like ideas that have uh, sort of uncapped market opportunities to, to generate large businesses. So where do you, as you think about the the verticals or, or niches with uncapped market opportunity right now, um, that might be primed based on the, the market that we are in right now. Earlier you did mention that you, you know, you look at cycles like this and it can lead to periods of rapid company formation. So um, as you think about the the verticals that are primed for, for new entrants that, you know, start, start at the bottom, um, where does your attention go? Yeah. So we've been spending a lot of time in the single family rental space over the last 18 months, I'd say. We think that they're, are interesting tailwinds like the uh, like the relationship between Mind and Invesco, which I mentioned. You know, as more institutional capital comes into the asset class, folks are ten are, are tending to partner with technology businesses in order to help deploy that capital. And there's this massive network of of companies that have formed around that thesis. The second area within SFR that I've personally been really interested in is uh, the tooling that is built for the mom and pop operator or the indie landlord to both find great investment opportunities um, and then also manage those, those properties um, over time and then eventually scale, scale the size of their portfolio. So that's, you know, 
products in banking, targeting small landlords, insurance, um, you know, investment platforms that help folks identify specific opportunities. Um, you know, we have a number of investments in that category, and I would say that's where I'm seeing a lot of net new company formation these days. That's really interesting. So, like, staying on the topic of short term short term rental, do you, does that interest in an STR kind of bridge to the the? Well, I think you just mentioned like the rental investment platforms, but we're also seeing kind of a, an emergence in fractional ownership, which is different than fractional investing. So I, I think a fractional ownership, I guess I'm thinking more of like the Picasso model where we're seeing more, which is like fractional owner occupant, where I look at like the roof stock model, which is enabling more of like fractional investments. Uh, do you see both of those ad markets as attractive areas? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think in general, you're seeing more creativity around um, the concept of ownership and the, and then there are lots of software platforms that sort of enable ownership of, uh, in any flavor. So just, I think I always we're investors in a company called Cardo, which helps startups manage their cap tables. And they built a lot of products sort of on top of that, that fundamental product. And I, I often point to Carta as this, um, this really cool example that can be ported over to real estate effectively. They built sort of the, the general ledger for ownership of startups. And, you know, it's actually seems simple. It's actually a complicated product to build and, um, bringing that same concept over to real estate, you can do things like actually build a cap table for a single asset, uh, transfer ownership between parties effectively, um, and then syndicate opportunities for, for new homes or, or new vacation rentals on that platform as well. And so I think we're very much in the early innings there. Um, there's a company, there's Picasso, of course, there's a company called Fractional that also is sort of building the plumbing for syndicating real estate investment opportunities. Um, and then there's a lot happening on the short-term rental side in that opco propco space as well that we talked about earlier, where uh, folks are raising venture capital to build um, to build, you know, either new property management systems for short-term rentals uh, or, or other technology, and then pairing that with the real estate funds to go out and buy vacation properties across the, the country. What do you think are some of the the tailwinds or technological milestones which are enabling uh, this this next wave of of prop tech, and so I'm thinking about the fractional ownership, um, uh, rental property, rental investment property platforms. Like, what what are the market tailwinds that are driving people to these investment opportunities? And also, like, what had to happen from a technology perspective for this current wave of player to come to the main come to the main stage? Yeah, so yeah, you know, I think in in real estate, so often capital markets um, drives what's happening uh, in the both both in the asset class and then also within uh, within sort of the venture backed universe of uh, uh, within real estate. And I think what's happened that's driven a lot of this this opportunity for innovation is um, the credit markets and, and capital markets waking up to technology companies is the vector, this really powerful vector through which they can deploy capital. It's taken time. You know, there's, um, 
you know, uh, there's a company called Casa, which is building a platform for uh, managing short-term rentals. And they, they've had to build the track record of being able to manage those properties effectively before they, they, they could go out and raise, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars from institutional, um, from institutional sources. So there, there's that. I think the other interesting phenomenon too, has just been the retail investor class waking up to opportunities here as well. Um, part of that is again, just the experience of investing on platforms like Fundrise um, or on Roofstock and just getting familiarity with sort of a new, a new investable asset class in many ways. Um, and then from a technology perspective, you know, a lot of it is, is around both, um, software to manage, you know, I, we talk a lot about bits and atoms, you know, software bits to manage atoms in a distributed manner. I think you needed to get all con- all the constituencies around real estate comfortable with using software as sort of the primary communication tool. You know, I, I think people can have opinions about Open Door, but the fact that they've been able to build sort of this distributed uh, network of tradespeople who are uh, who are sort of coordinated on a central software platform is really unique and. Um, and something that literally couldn't exist, you know, a decade plus ago. And so it's, I would say it's just, it's less about any particular innovation from a, from a technical perspective, but more about getting the right products in the hands of the right people and getting them familiar with, with how to operate um, in a software driven world. That's really interesting. So, so Nima, as you think about the, we talked about the market dynamics that are driving investing today, um, what are, what are you anticipating in terms of market dynamics in 2023, 2024, like shake the, you know, the crystal ball for a second. Like, what are you preparing for? Um, whether it's from an interest rate perspective or housing price volatility perspective, like what are you getting ready for in the coming years and how does that play into new investment strategy? Yeah, I, uh, I wish I was better at prognosticating, um, uh, on on the macro, unfortunately, um, I don't have a strong track record there. You can you can ask my colleagues. Um, and so, I, th- I think our approach generally is to assume that we're we're sort of in for several quarters of of you know of what we're experiencing today. You know, relatively high interest rates, persistently high CPI. Hopefully, some some relief uh, from on from a CPI perspective in in early twenty twenty three. Um, and then it's a really good question. Now, what does that mean for how we approach investing, particularly within real estate? I think in general, we tend to think about the counter cyclical elements to the businesses that we're funding. You know, it's when things are going well, you know, there, that there's one model to be employed, but what happens when inevitably, um, home prices decline or the, the credit cycle shifts and interest rates rise, what, what features of your business model uh, actually uh, benefit from, from those moments in time? Um, and it's, it's like, it's, it's a imperfect analysis, right? As, especially in today's market where not only are you, de- are you dealing with higher interest rates, but you're sort of dealing with a frozen market in so many instances. And that's, I don't think, 
any company um, can sort of navigate that with the same uh, like growth profile that they did during better times. But um, but in general, we like to to understand, you know, is this a durable model that that works in both good times and bad? Yeah, I mean, our lead analyst Logan Motoshami keeps using the term savagely unhealthy, which has kind of led into this frozen model that or frozen market that that you speak of, which uh, frozen might be worse than when worse than broken. Uh, I think that broken at least enables some of that counter cyclical capability. Uh, I think a counter cyclicality, and I, I my mind comes back to the opco propco conversation we had, and um, I think that rental homes and rental market has been the savior has been rapid rent pro- growth over the last few years, even though the entrance price has gotten pretty high and home price appreciation, asset appreciation, I think has deterred some folks from entering the the market and investing in real estate, um, even though rent growth is, you know, kept people above board. Do you think as a counter cyclical measure could uh, flattening or even reduction in asset prices be that counter cyclical measure that brings more investors and more capital into the investing side of the ecosystem, like through those uh, propco entities? Yeah. So I, I think everyone is sort of waiting for that to happen. And, you know, even on the, the SFR side where there are now, you know, like the rooftop platform, right. Massive, um, massive, GMB on that platform flowing through to uh, sort of enabling transactions amongst institutions. And there's been, there's been a sort of a stated slowdown on that platform as institutional investors sort of wait for, for home, home price appreciation to reverse, right. Or prices to begin declining. And so I, I think on the single family rental side that, you know, that's, that's what everyone's waiting for. And, um, and then, you know, I think one reason you've been seeing a lot of activity on the short-term rental side is because that's still a place where yields are great. You know, that's still a place where you can uh, underwrite to a you know a ten plus percent net yield, and so that's why you're still seeing a lot of activity there on within that opco propco model. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one thing that makes us you know slightly optimistic is that there are a ton of companies that will benefit from a period when home prices start to normalize. That's awesome. Okay. So we do a lot of work with uh, vertical software and BB software companies in the, the housing industry. So if we, if we kind of hold you to your prognostication of uh, a few tough quarters and in the market, how, how do you, how do you advise operators, um, you know, that might between be between their seed and a or between their, their B and C on a, uh, on managing their business for for growth, but simultaneously managing for profitability. Basically, what I'm getting to is, if you're a B2B software operator, how do you prepare your business to be ready to raise more capital on the on the other side of this? Like, what what are like the do we focus more on top line? Do we focus more on profitability? Like, what gets you to the other side and helps maximize valuation for the long haul? Yeah, there's. Um... I would say there's three primary things that we've been advising companies to do. One is, you know, the the obvious uh, cuts, whether that's, um, you know, maybe pushing off product development efforts for a new a new product uh, out by a few quarters in order to um, to save 
some capital, say, say conserve cash on R&D, whether that's uh, being very meticulous about tracking the effectiveness of your sales team and trimming when necessary. Um, you know, just, just that, I would say that's that being prudent about your OPEX in a period when, you know, the likelihood of raising that next round of venture capital has gone down meaningfully. I think that's number one. It's pretty obvious. Number two is, um, restructuring how, uh, your, your, commercial agreements with customers when possible to bring more cash in sooner. I think that's actually proven to be a really interesting uh, cash management tool that a lot of our SaaS companies have employed. Can you restructure things to to pull in cash up front um, and offer a discount um, as a result? Uh, and that's that's actually worked. Like that can act, that can extend runway by by months um, if done correctly. And then the third is being creative about pulling new capital into the business. You know, is there was there a potential strategic partner that wanted to invest in the business? Can you can you light up those conversations again and maybe offer attractive terms to to invest today? Can we uh, you know coerce the existing investor syndicate into putting together a bridge financing? Can we think creatively about debt um, or other, uh, you know, capital structures to bring money into the into the operating business? Um, and again, I, in general, like we like to see at least eighteen months of runway across the portfolio. And so, if if that condition has not been met, it's like let's think creatively as a board, as a leadership group, um, to get to that to that. Uh, that metric. That's really interesting. Nima, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us today for this episode of Housing News. Um, like I said in the beginning, big big fan of of your work and, and your writing and the, the market map um, and really excited to get to follow your investing activity. Thank you again for sharing all your experience today. Yeah, great to be with you. Thanks. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.